Okay, on to today's show and today's guest, uh, Ben Prentice of uh, the website WTFHappenedIn1971.com, which I urge absolutely anybody to go and have a look at uh, because, um, you know, if you're into learning by uh, graphical nature, pictures, graphs, what, uh, what Ben and his, uh, his partner, um, he was, uh, it was co-written, what they did is pull all these, this information together and just map it out in such an understandable way of, of what has happened um, since 1971. And just before I sat down to record this with Ben, my wife and I were going through the graphs and we picked out, Ben, we picked out about six that um, just really like, you know, shake us by the neck and, you know, make us wake up. Uh, so I'll, I'll, you know, bring those up and ask you about them. But um, I want to ask, what led you to to put all this stuff together? You know, what was the lead up to to getting that out there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was, you know, I've I've been on um, so my friend Colin, which is a heavily armed C on Twitter. Um, I've been on his podcast a few times. He's a he's a good friend of mine, and we were just kind of chatting one day, and uh, you know, it's like. It, we were looking at all these charts. I've collected these charts. Um, I started doing a lot of research um, on the, you know, after falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, um, I started doing a lot of research on, uh, you know, the gold standard and like, you know, if, if Bitcoin is supposed to be such better money, then, um, you know, what happened when we went off the gold standard? And I started looking just mostly through like Wikipedia pages. And um, that's where the few, first few, like um, the first slew of these charts came from and started looking at it and it you know it looks like all the charts just start going kind of absolutely insane in, in 1971 and we were just talking we were like yeah what you know wtf happened in 1971 and colin it's this is actually colin's idea um he goes what if we just made a website that said wtf happened in 1971 and he goes and he's like wtf happened in 1971.com it's available let's do it so we just like throw it up we start throwing these charts up and we start to, we're like, you know, should we explain all this stuff? And, and, and we, we kind of just came up with the idea to just put all the charts up, just says what WTF happened in 1971 at the top. And there's absolutely no explanation. Um, and we allow, you know, the reader to draw their own conclusions. Obviously, um, the only indication we've given is that, and, and a lot of these charts, or some of these charts already had the indication of the ending of Bretton Woods, the ending of the, um, the closest thing we've had to a gold standard in, you know, in the, uh, 20th century um but we just we just the rest of it we just let the data speak for itself and um obviously we have um some of our own conclusions um obviously some of them are maybe even a little bit uh hard to hard to you know indicate that they actually are direct results of the ending of the gold standard but we also just we just find it fascinating that you know we think money is so um, deeply entrenched in society and, and affects society that when you corrupt money, you actually corrupt the very fabric of our culture. And, and therefore some of these kind of maybe second order effects um, may, may have even indicated that, or, or may have even influenced uh, some of the data, especially towards the, you know, the end of the, uh, the site there. Yeah. And for, and for those <laughs> listening uh, for the first time coming in and, and, you know, really actually questioning, WTF did happen in 1971. Could, could you explain a little bit about, you know, what the Bretton Woods gold standard was and, um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so, uh, you know, in the, in the 1800s, when we say a gold standard, um, there was, it was actually more of a, a free banking area where, um, individual either states or actual individual banks would issue their own notes. See, gold was actually a pretty terrible money. Um, when you start, doing um, commerce on a massive, you know, global scales, especially um, because transporting giant amounts of gold is just, is so bloody expensive, right? Um, to borrow a, a British uh, ad adjective there um, is that it's just, it's so bloody expensive to uh, transport, uh, say the, va uh, say the purity of, and, you know, pieces of paper worked really well um, as a stand-in as long as they could be redeemed for gold that it would it would act as a check on the system that you know the issuer of these pieces of paper couldn't just make as many pieces of paper as they would like right um, and make it rain pieces of paper they were they were constricted by this redemption of gold you know this this gold window uh, per se and that was in the 1800s and um, in the 1900s um, with the establishment of the Federal Reserve um, there was still gold redemption up until 1933 when, um, 
the executive order 6102 was signed, um, which outlawed the uh, ownership of gold, private ownership of gold in the United States. Um, sorry, this is a very United States centric view, um, but you know, that's, I think you know, a lot of the world followed the United States and this kind of goes on. Um, in 1944, um, that's when the Bretton Woods Agreement happened. Um, you know, it's some kind of a closed door hotel, a Bretton Woods Hotel on some island or something, uh, where um, a bunch of countries got together and agreed to essentially create a, a gold standard between each other that the countries could redeem gold um, amongst each other so that it would kind of keep the each other honest amongst themselves. However, they all just kind of agreed to essentially inflate their currencies at the same rate. Um, and it was constricted a little bit, um, but you know, towards you know, the end of the late 60s, uh, it, it seems to me, my understanding was that um, the US was starting to inflate more and they, they were losing their gold because if they continued to redeem the gold, um, because they were printing paper, that they they stood to they stood to lose uh, more gold, and and eventually um, Richard Nixon, Richard effing Nixon, as I say, um, I am not a crook. Richard Nixon right. uh, comes out and he says, um, and it's like a quote. He goes, uh, "I'm going to temporarily re um, suspend the redemption of gold," um, and it was supposed to be a temporary thing, and that was a uh, oh yeah, I directed Senator uh, what was it? Secretary Connolly, and Secretary Connolly uh, later claimed, uh, was it uh, personal bankruptcy? <laughs> so this is the Secretary Treasury that was advisor to Nixon under this act was later later claimed literal um, personal bankruptcy. So it's just you know kind of a little bit of the history about the the, the money system, and that's that's when uh, when he did that he effectively ended the Bretton Woods Agreement for everybody because the United States was centric anyway. And it kind of forced everybody um, onto like fiat money. Right. That's a, that's a basic overview, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's very good. And when, when you look at some of the graphs that you, you've put up on the website, what, what's happened since then is just absolutely crazy. And, you know, I'll pick out a few here. Um, one for me, were the, uh, the the graph that um, highlights the hyperinflation episodes um, yeah. you know, since I, I think you started at like the 1900s and you know it is pretty much all all okay there's there's one or two until the first world war then four or five countries there's hyperinflation then there's pretty much quiet after the first world war up to the second world war and then we have another handful hyperinflation and then it's all good until about 1971 and then ever since 1971 it just, my God, like so many countries have, have gone through this hyperinflation cycle that just leaves people, generations shattered financially. Yeah, and, and for what it's worth, this chart, um, it is using a standard of um, hyper, the, the definition of hyperinflation, meaning the time it takes for prices to double um, based on weeks, right? So if as long as this takes longer than a week to double it won't show up on this chart so um there there could you know there's potentially more than that i mean sudan's currency is like 20 percent inflation argentina's has been like 30 and um you know turkey iran uh, obviously venezuela's even on the chart but there's there's a lot more to this i think inflation is one of the most poorly understood concepts in, in money itself um and it's it's hard because we all just rely on this government metric CPI, um, and you know other countries have their own version of this, where the government comes out and says, um, uh, we've we've looked at all these this basket of goods, and we think that the prices have risen by this amount. And and you know, that's actually a really hard thing to do um, to to get the aggregate price average um, changes over time because. You know, I mean, a, you know, a computer or a car might come out the next year and the price might be the same, but you might get more value for it. So how do you measure how much better a car is or whatever? Um, or how do you even um, measure like, it, are you measuring the prices of literally every single thing in the market? No. So they use a basket of goods. And does that basket affect, you know, you or me differently because we, we buy different things? Um, and on top of that, 
they changed the CPI price calculation in 1980, and then again in 1990. Um, they, you know, they changed they change the way it, uh, it works. And if you use the old numbers, um, there's some websites like uh, Shadow Stats, I think. Um, if you just use the original calculation, um, the inflation is much higher, uh, and it's closer to like 8%. Um, so, you know, is, is it really 2%? Is it 8%? Is it somewhere in between? Uh, who, who bloody knows? I mean, it's, 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 uh, inflation is, like I said, it, it's, it's, it's an illusory phenomenon that, uh, it, it's, it just, it tears apart our, our, our price signaling information, um, that is essential to market operations. You know, um, have I ever, have I ever talked to you about pr price signaling? No. Before? Yeah, let's, let's get into it. And yeah, I'd love for you to, to talk more about inflation and make sure people really truly understand that, you know, with inflation at, you know, in play right now, we're just playing catch up the whole time. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, I've heard it described as like running on a treadmill, right? You save money, but then in 20 years, you're across approximately 40% of your, your, your wealth has been dwindled away. So there's like this treadmill, the slavery effect that you constantly have to replenish this unless you're, um, gambling on the stock market or on other, or storing your money in, in real estate, real estate has, you know, depreciation and all these other things. But, um, the, the price signals is, is really important because this is what I mean by it's literally this tearing apart the fabric of, of the way that we cooperate together is because, uh, price signals, there's this, uh, there's this adage. I, I think I almost always tell this story now on a podcast, but it's, it's such a great story where it's like uh, Milton Friedman used to talk about this, but he's not the original person who wrote it. I think it's called I pencil. And it's the idea that nobody knows how to make a pencil, right? Or that where, you know, you get, um, where do you, you know, how do you get the pencil? You need the wood, right? So, so first you have to go to like the Northwest and uh, how do you get the wood down? Well, you need the saw, right? So do you know how to like forge a saw? Well, in, let's see, you need to go, actually, first you need to go mine the ore, and then you need to refine the ore, and then you need to smelt it or, or, or smith it somehow into a saw, and now you've just got the saw to cut the wood down, and then you have to transport it wherever, um, and mill it and get it to the right shape, um, and that's just the wood, and then there's, you know, there's the little metal band around the top, so that's a similar process, you need to smelt, that's a different type of metal that you need for the saw, so you need to, and then you need to form that and shape it, and then the rubber, you know, I, the rubber comes from uh, where Africa or, or somewhere else. And then you have to get that out of the trees and refine that and then process it and get it, you know, make it pink, dye it pink so it's a little tip. And then um, you have to paint it the outside, get the paint. I don't know where the paint comes from. And the graphite um, that goes on the inside. It's like, uh, you know, Milton Friedman goes, even, even I don't know where the graphite comes from. And it's like, so, so, and a pencil costs like what, five cents, three right. cents? Uh, it costs almost nothing. And, and this is the, the aggregate cooperation of um, thousands or, or not hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And, and the reason they are cooperating, nobody's directing them. There's no central entity that's telling them all, you go make rubber, you go make uh, metal, and you go make wood. It's, it's the price system itself that allows us, that tells us, gives us the price information about what, is, um, what the market needs and desires and, and what what the cost of that really is, the real cost of that. So when you constantly um, are changing the supply of money, supply and demand are, you know, <laughs> uh, obviously intrinsically linked. So you're constantly changing the demand for those things and you're, you're disrupting the price signals. Um, so that, that's this inflation is, is, is twofold. It's one, it's, it's constantly uh, has us on this treadmill of wealth where we have to keep kind of replenishing it um, or gambling. And it's also constantly distorting signals that tell us what we should be buying and what we should be producing and what the real cost of those things are. Um, and that's, that's why I think uh, there's a lot of issues in our society today. And it's hard to see these things because we just, oh, that's the price, right? Oh, the prices went up again. Inflation's a bitch, you know? But, yeah, but we but don't really understand. Well, on that, a lot of problems in our society today, like on my list of two of the graphs that I pulled up, the divorce prevalence. Um, by age, <laughs> incarceration rate uh, by age. Yeah. You know, this, looking at the divorce is, is crazy after 1971. Everything just spikes so, you know, so far to the right. Uh, and, you know, incarceration, and incarceration in males, well, you know, my goodness, that, that, that graph is just crazy. Yeah, it's worrisome. Um, and to be fair, these are more of those kind of second order effects 
um, that I was talking about that, you know, can you really tie these directly to the, the uh, imposing of fiat money on society? But, um, and, and like the divorce one in particular, there were some, um, there were some laws about uh, divorce, at-fault divorces that, you know, started happening in 1971. But again, the abrupt change is what I find interesting. Mm. Um, you know, and I've heard, you know, something about, Oh well, the wages. If you look at the wage charts, that it it's because labor unions started declining. But um, if you look at the wage charts, it's like, well, did all wait, uh, labor unions just disappear abruptly in 1971 exactly? And is that just a coincidence? You know, I don't know. Um, but but yeah, again, so like if if you're destroying the fabric of society the way that you know that society cooperates and um, by by destroying the money, which is the tool by which we cooperate, um, then, then yes, I would expect it to kind of slowly erode the, the institutions of society. And, and in seeing effects like that aren't, aren't outside of the realm of, you know, um, of, of being maybe, co you know, correlation. There's, there's the whole joke about, you know, if you, <laughs> the correlation does not cause, you know, does not causation. If you, if you go, there's a website, I can't remember what it is, but if you can look up, and it has all these crazy charts. It's like, you know, prevalence of uh, Nicolas Cage in movies and, and also like birth rates or something. And they, and they like go along perfectly, right? So like, no, I totally understand this concept. But um, the, the third chart in that category is the share of um, 25 to 29 year olds living with their parents yeah. or, or grandparents. And, and I think that's, that's a common story that we've heard a lot today is that, you know, nobody's moving out. Nobody's buying houses. And um, can you know it, it's really hard for young people to afford that it versus previous generations and you know what you know why is that and you know is it related um, maybe you know again we're not trying to um, tell a huge story here there's no accompanying blog post that explains everything it's just we're just looking at the data and, and kind of asking the question ourselves right and I think <laughs> anybody that ever listens to this is going to be sitting there not in their head at that point I, probably everybody out there knows of somebody aged between 25, 29, whatever it is on that, on that graph that is still living or has been forced to move back in with their parents or grandparents. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's honestly, it's crazy. Well, one of the things that's really, um, that is well understood is that Keynesians would even agree with you on is that um, inflation um, does disincentivize savings and incentivizes debt. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if the value of money declines over time which is the case and they all acknowledge this is the, the way they, they 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 think this is a desirable characteristic of money that it devalues over time um so that the amount of your savings is worth less over time right that's obvious um but the amount of your debt like the you know if you have to pay it back let's say you know it takes you five hours to work to pay back some amount of debt but in the future it'll actually take you less time to work if, if wages are actually rising with inflation so if I take out, you know, a hundred thousand dollar loan, you know, in ten years, if I pay that back, it's it's only going to be paying back eighty thousand dollars worth of right now dollar wealth. So it 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 incentivizes debt. So if you, and there's also there's a savings rate, uh, personal savings rate chart on the website. So yep. if you look in right in 1971, savings rates start to decline, um, and you can only see them go right back up in 2008 when there was actually some deflation from the credit contraction of um, you know, some, some amount of liquidation that happened, which, which hurt many, many people, um, mm. which is, by the way, I think a mini parallel to what happened in 1929, um, the, the Great Depression, mm -hmm. which is a, also a very poorly understood, I think, uh, piece of this entire history. Um, okay, well, don't leave us hanging. <laughs> uh, well, so like there's, um, the, the reason you always hear the Great Depression come up in these conversations is because if you talk to you know a Keynesian um, that says we we must deflate you know we must inflate our money uh, otherwise you know everything will come grinding to a halt they they point to the Great Depression and they say look that was deflation and that was very bad and that is true that was deflation and it was very bad but it was very sudden uh, very unexpected hyper deflation um, which was a direct result of a contraction of the money supply due to credit expansion and literally inflation. And it's to me no coincidence that the Federal Reserve was established in 1913 and then 
1929, after the Roaring Twenties. Do you remember the Roaring Twenties when everyone was drinking and partying and right. money was inflating? Um, the hangover from the Roaring Twenties was the Great Depression when people went to go redeem their gold and they realized that more paper had been issued than there was gold and there were bank runs, right? Um, and this set up the um, it, it laid the, the the groundwork for allowing them to set up the FDIC which um, gets me into another one where I, you know, a lot of people rail on fractional reserve banking. I actually think fractional reserve banking is, is just a regular uh, a market thing and we shouldn't say it's bad or good. Um, it's just a thing. What, what makes fractional reserve banking bad is the fact that the government um, is the lender of last resort and therefore shifts the, uh, the risk um, of, of, of loans going bad from the institution and the in individuals that are in that institution to society as a whole, because that's what happened in 2008 when they just printed a whole bunch of money in order to bail, literally bail out the banks. This is exactly what happened. And what did it, it, it didn't cause hyperinflation as many cried that it would printing, you know, was it $8 trillion or whatever it was in the last uh, decade. It, it didn't cause um, hyperinflation because most of that money went to um, institutions. Um, and what do institutions do with money? Well, they, they hedge it um, by gambling on the stock market and real estate so that they can store their value because they know that money is a terrible thing to hold. So what did we see in the last you know, uh, two decades? Massive, um, or actually mostly in the last dec decade, massive asset inflation, which has inflated all the wealth of the wealthiest people because wealthy people can afford to hold more of their wealth in these volatile assets than um, people that you know have to live paycheck to paycheck who, who hold all of their money in money. Um, so that I don't know. I'm now I'm ranting, and there's a lot. Of, I'm kind of just going off on a lot of tangents. So. No, well, I, I think um, <laughs> what, what what you were just uh, talking about there. I think um, there's a lot of language in this in this in this world that is being created that um, people might not understand. And I believe what you just um, outlined perfectly was the uh, Cantillon effect. Yeah, well, so I think this is actually separate from the Cantillon effect. I think a lot of people say that when I talk about this uh, asset inflation train. Um, that So the Cantillon effect is when uh, receivers of newly created money, um, which happens through credit expansion, um, but also through actually printing money, right? And these are two separate things that are both have inflationary forces. Um, credit expansion without a lender of last resort is a is just generally checked by, um, you know, how much institutions are willing to loan out. Um, and, and that is new money. And if you take out a bunch of money and you spend it in the economy, if you, you take out a brand new loan of, you know, let's say four quadrillion dollars, all of a sudden you start spending it, the prices won't really rise for you, but they will start to rise very quickly afterward as that money dissipates out into the economy. Um, then, so your, your prices, weren't higher, but that for everybody else it is. That's the Cantillion effect, right? That the the receivers of the new money um, get to spend at current day's prices, but as that money um, precipitates out into the economy, and then everybody else starts buying with this. Oh, well, everybody has windfalls now because this one brand new guy is spending all this money. Um, now those prices start to rise for those people, especially after the third and the fourth person that use it. That's the Cantillion effect. That's that one. Uh, what I'm talking about is asset inflation. And this is this idea that um, essentially the, the wealthier you are, the larger amount of your wealth is stored in real estate, stocks, um, business interests. But, um, you know, the poorest among us obviously don't hold any any real estate, any stocks, any business interests. And there's a scale um, that goes all the way up. So the, you know, people in the middle probably have some stocks and probably have a you know a small house or a medium sized house or whatever. Um, but it's it's the poorest in society that 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 uh, struggle the most from this. They don't benefit from asset inflation at all. And the wealthiest among us, you know, I mean, you've seen the charts of like 0.1 percent of the population holds like what is it like 30 or 40 percent of all of the stock market. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if we're just saying that the last decade that we've printed what is it, eight trillion dollars or whatever? I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it's this is massive amounts. We, we we four or five x the entire money supply, yeah. um, and and we've inflated the stock market. We've essentially inflated 
the wealth of the 0.1%, um, that, that's 40% of the stock market. The rest is disseminated amongst their, you know, and it's still like the 1% still holds like another 10 or 20%. And the, 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 the bottom half of society holds like almost nothing. You know, it's like 1% or 10% is, is, is almost nothing. So we're only helping the rich by doing that. And um, I think it's, it's, it's leading to uh, massive uh, amounts of social backlash. And you now you see a populism rising throughout the world. You see, um, you see protests and you see um, people calling for, for social welfare to redistribute the wealth because uh, they don't feel that this is, this is working for people. And I think that's very common thread today. Um, and I'm trying to explain the whys and, and what happened in the first place um, without trying to invalidate that feeling. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I totally get it. And um, you, you, it's not just a problem in the US, right? This is a global, global issue. Uh, this is happening all over the place. And yeah. you know, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to watch. And, and that brings us really nicely into into Bitcoin. And, you know, your thoughts around around Bitcoin and, and that being you know, a bona fide option for people to, um, to opt out of the financial system and opt into something that um, could really serve them. What, what are your thoughts uh, on that? Well, it's really interesting because Bitcoin is still in this kind of proto money savings technology monetization phase. Um, and, and that's what I really feel like it is. Uh, it is undergoing monetization because, you know, Safedine would talk about how it's, essentially the hardest asset that's ever existed before. And that societies tend to store their wealth in a hard asset um, that has properties of being able to be exchanged with people um, because that's what best serves individuals. And in aggregate, society tends to all do that. And, and, and that's the idea that, you know, that, that the, the most liquid good in a, in a society, meaning that the, the most desirable good um, is not only the hardest asset, but also just it becomes money, right? And, and we're in this very interesting paradigm that, um, you know, not just in Bitcoin's nascent and growing stage, but also that with fiat money being such a terrible store of value, which by the way, if you look up anywhere, that what's the definition of a money is it's a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. Like store of value is part of the definition of money. And because we know we've we've we're using this this terrible money, fiat money, um, it's it's not a good store of value that people use other things to store their value, like stocks and real estate. Yeah, it's the same old trope over and over again. But these things now have monetary properties and um, what we call a monetary premium a price above what its use value would be um, because of its, its, its being held for monetary value. So real estate, you see, um, you know, you can see a lot of vacant um, real estate in, in New York City, right? So like that's, that's a mind-blowing concept that there's, you know, in one of the largest uh, cities in the world, the most, you know, bustling and um, that, that it, obviously desirable real estate, that it, why is it lying vacant? Because people are using it to store their value. Um, so I'm, I'm getting off from your original question here. Um, oh, so, so the, these, all these other things have monetary properties because of the poor monetary properties of, of the dollar or, or of the yen or the euro or whatever. And, and now you have entering Bitcoin is entering the space. And it's, it's not only do I think it would be a, a, a decent store of value if it was, you know, well monetized and you know the world's been hyper bitcoinized and there's no more fiat money i think it would store your value pretty well i think actually you'd see most prices would decline a little bit every year as we you know got better at making things that's that's a normal phenomenon um but but now because we are in this monetization phase and then it's you know it's been around for 11 years now and some people use it and you know, some of them are, you know, criminals or whatever, but there's a bunch of people that, you know, and people in Venezuela are using it and people are um, using it in, in Africa for remittances and, and, you know, you and I are using it to, you know, speculate. And so there's this, there's this like hyper potential opportunity for it to go up in price. And, and that's, there's this asymmetric return profile, as they say. And, and that's why we're in this very strange situation because, um, there's this 
because of that massive potential, it, it's not just, you know, hey, a way to opt out. It's, well, actually, if you if you kind of risk a little bit on this kind of risky, you know, Bitcoin system, because it sounds crazy to most people. It's like, oh, this is weird internet money. Um, <laughs> if you risk a little bit, there's this potential for a huge amount of gain. And, um, you know, Anthony Papaliano would talk about how a 99% cash position and a 1% Bitcoin position would outperform any stock portfolio that you can put together. So there's only so long that, you know, um, financial managers and all these other guys can ignore this thing because if they lose that, you know, what if Bitcoin goes to zero, which I, I find highly unlikely. I think it provides a lot of value to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons around the world, even today, despite its volatility, and despite its nascence, um, that, that you only lose that 1%. But the potential upside, um, if this becomes, uh, you know, a more widespread use, um, is, is just, is just, you can't ignore it, right? It's the get off zero, as he would say. And, yeah. You know, and he's a, he's kind of a shit coiner sometimes, so I won't try to pump him too much. But <laughs> it, it, it is a really powerful concept that um, is, hasn't really spread through, I think, you know, the financial world yet. But there's people like, um, who is it, uh, Andy Edstrom? Yep. He's a, is that his name? Um, he he kind of just jumped because on the scene. Yeah, why buy Bitcoin? Uh, yes. You told me about this guy. You told me about Andy. Yeah, and so he's like a that, like this book is incredible. Yeah. This book, I'm calling it on this podcast. This is going to be a cult classic, and and Andy's going to come on the show, and we're going to talk about this. Um, and it was because of you. You, you told me you got to go listen to. Um, it was on your on, on your friend's podcast, right? The um, yeah, uh, it was on the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Bitcoin um, Echo Chamber. I think I think. I think Colin found him first, so uh, uh, good, good job, Heavily Armed C. He, uh, he, oh, got, wow. he got, he's, he's kind of, I think he's going to blow up. He only has a few, you know, a few hundred followers or something. But uh, oh, he, so he's a financial, uh, like a financial advisor. Yep. And he <laughs> fell down the rabbit hole, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I, see, that's what I think you're going to start to see is like, uh, is, you know, you started, Bitcoin started with just the cypherpunks. Because they were the ones that could understand the, the code and the cryptography, and other everyone else would just be like, "That doesn't look like it's going to work," which is what I did when I heard about it in 2011. Uh, and then you kind of got the libertarians and the gold bugs, and they're like, "Oh, this is pretty interesting." Um, and then in 2017, you got all the tech bros and San Francisco people, and the and some of the traders. There's a lot of trade. If you look on YouTube, 90% of Bitcoin YouTube is traders, right? And the right. charts and the TA and all this stuff. What I think you're going to see next is the finance guys. You see Raul, um, Raul GMI, who yep. I, I believe you're uh, well familiar, familiar with. You see He's guys like come Andy on the Edstrom. As well. uh, yep. You yep. see uh, Anthony Pompiano. You see all these other guys. So I, I think you're going to start to see that that finance. I think it's already happening. That's yep. getting integrated. I don't, I don't know what the next cohort is. Um, I, I've heard Murad say that it might be you know high net worth individuals being like, I think I might get off zero and put 1% in or something like yeah. that. Um, and, and, and then this game just keeps going and that there's this incentives and the, and the, uh, the potential upside is, is like I said, it's hard to ignore. What I love about this right now is like you said, it's 11 years old. Um, the, you know, a few people and, um, you know, wealth managers, hedge fund managers, people like that, they are coming into the space that we've had 11 years of this. They, it's still very, very early. So for anybody listening, you're still ahead of Main Street. You're still ahead of Wall Street. You're still ahead. It's like the only financial asset that's ever been devised in our lifetimes that you could get in before a government or before a huge financial um, conglomerate. Um, and you can buy fractions of it. I don't think people really understand that, um, you know, they, they see the price. It's like six and a half thousand pounds, seven thousand pounds, ten thousand dollars, eight and a half thousand euros, whatever it is. And they're like, well, it's too expensive. I can't. It's like, no, guys. Like you can buy just bits and pieces, like 20 euros a week, whatever it is. Do that for the next 10 years and then see where you are. Yeah, almost everybody I've told that doesn't, didn't understand that. They're like, oh, it's, it's 10 grand. I don't, you know, I, that's out of my price range, just like the stocks and the and real estate and stuff is out of most people's price range. So that is, that is a really important thing to let people know. Is you, can, you can buy $1 worth of Bitcoin um, if, you, if you want to. It's, it's, it's divisible almost infinitely. Um, Which is another... Part of the Bitcoin story, right? That, that it can that it can be divided into that that tiny like micro payments um, like oh, aspect. Yeah, of it. yeah, and, and any any amount of money is enough money for society. Um, 
as, as you'll read in, in Austrian economic literature, that it, it doesn't matter what the quantity is long, is that is it can be divided, right? So what you know, why the 21 million? It doesn't friggin' matter what that number is. It just matters that they the social consensus around Bitcoin has has uh, solidified around this this hard cap supply. It, it doesn't matter if it was you know 22 quadrillion, um, as long as it's divisible. One Bitcoin would be enough for the entire world as long as you could divide it into enough pieces. Yeah, exactly. If we get back to your charts, um, what was the one sure. chart? What was the one chart that just like? Do you remember like that 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 just made you sit back, drop your jaw? When you were putting it all together and seeing all of this information, you're like, whoa. Yeah, um, it was probably, so the first two charts that I have up there, I think, um, I, I, I think are the, the most jaw-dropping. Um, it's, it's the idea that, you know, even though GDP is growing up and productivity is growing up, in general, wages aren't really going up. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think this intrinsically makes sense that, you know, when you're, in inflating money that the, you know, the value of money goes down over time that that people have to fight i mean you know people that are working wage jobs you know minimum wage jobs and stuff like that they're fighting to get two or three percent wages per year uh raises right mm -hmm. um and that's that's if you're doing good okay mm -hmm. that's like oh you know johnny hey it looks like you did good in the last six months we're gonna give you a, a 50 cent raise or whatever it's like uh wait a second isn't in money inflating by 2% per year? Doesn't that mean you need a 2% raise every year just to keep up with inflation? Yeah. So you haven't actually grown at all, right? So you'd have to, you'd have to get a three or 4% raise every single year. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are getting that, you know, consistently every single year. Uh, and that's tough. And then again, a lot of these people don't have stocks in real estate and all that other stuff uh, so that their, their savings are slowly being dwindled, whatever that they can squirrel away. Um, or hide under the mattress. So uh, this, this I, I think, is the key concept to understand that, that you know, I, I, I've talked about this before too, but I, I think this is a hard one for me to articulate, but that, see, prices should be going down, right? right. Um, almost, uh, almost across the board, all prices should be going down. Uh, and there might be a few sectors where uh, that's not really the case. Um, the easiest way to understand this is with computers, right? And computers and technology, um, are deflationary because we get better at making them every year. We can make a better computer for the same amount of money or for more money or <laughs> for less money, you can get the same computer you did last year, right? Um, it's an easy concept to understand. And, and that's generally true in pretty much every industry. If you, you, know, you look at them manufacturing this thing, they're going to try to uh, make it a little bit better this year. They're going to use a different material maybe or a different process or they're going to um, they're going to streamline their, you know, their, their productivity workflow within, you know, hey, we don't need this guy. Um, let's, let's have him do something else or whatever. You're not going to try to make it more expensive, right? I mean, uh, there is a difference between price and cost, for sure. Um, but in general, most prices should be going down. Um, it only goes up because of inflation, right? So when you look at that first chart, the productivity chart, mm. um, it, it to me tells me that we have been getting better at doing things. Uh, we're we're decreasing the costs of things, um, but we are making sure that the price goes up by nominal amount. Um, so no matter how quickly we can make this thing better and, and cheaper, we will guarantee that the price goes up no matter what, um, on average, right? And that that technology outpaces that because it's almost exponential with the Moore's law, this doubling. It's a um, it, it gets better and better every year. It, it outpaces that completely. But in, in general, all prices should be rising. So the the amount that's that's being that's being extracted from us through inflation by creating new money is is not just two percent. It's whatever it should be going down by as well. Yeah, it's, does that make sense? You know, it's it's a weird thing I, to I looked at the same chart, and you know, it stuck out to me like, um, wait, if produ uh, productivity is going up, why the hell um, you know a price is not coming down? And like, if you were to put the CPI over that as well. You'd be like, huh, this doesn't make any sense at all. And wages are just flatlined. Uh, it's like, hang on a minute. What, what you know, yeah. what disconnect? And this isn't an, um, an Austrian economic theory, is it not? Like, you seem to be one of the, the most well-read people in, in that field. <laughs> oh, no, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> you, you want well-read well people in that field, go to Max Hillebrand, 
go to um, you know Stefan Libera is very well read. Eric Eric Boskul, um, these guys are you know just levels above me, and actually that, uh, I've that's only a, really started to delve into it. That that's a good point. To um, you, you've brought up the word Keynesian a few times. Could you explain to people um, what you mean by that? What um, you know, I, I'd still even like to do more research on this because it, Keynes, man, Keynes was this guy who wrote a lot about economics, but if you look at like a lot of the things he said, um, first of all, he, he decried inflation. Um, I mean, there's an amazing quote I can look up where he, he's the one that says it, it, that inflation like debases society, right? Um, so he was against inflation, first of all. Um, and second of all, I think it was Keynes that came up with the idea of the, the bank or, wasn't it? Hold on, let me let me look this up really quickly. Go for it. Bancor. Because see, I think Bitcoin is the Bancor. Yeah, it's John Maynard Keynes, right? In in 1940, 1942, right before the Bretton Woods Agreement was signed, interestingly enough. Uh-huh. So the banker Bancor was this idea of the supranational currency, um, uh, a a a reserve asset, if you will, that um, was neutral among countries, right? So the problem is that we have these these money wars between countries, you know, are you inflating more than me or whatever? And that's why they made the Bretton Woods system so that would, Oh, let's all inflate together. And, right. and now today they're even talking about this, this infl- uh, money war. They were talking about between China and the U S and like, Oh, well, they're inflating their So it's, it's affecting the trade balance and all this stuff. So Keynes had this idea of, of Bitcoin essentially without the digital amount where there's this verifiable reserve asset. It's, it's a neutral uh, global asset. So I, and if you look at, um, you know, macro voices, what they've been talking about, the, the, the euro dollar system, and um, it, it, you follow that whole story. There's a univer- euro dollar university series on macro voices, a great podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about, you know, banks, essentially, the, at least in my reading of it, was that the, you, you need a, a, a reserve asset that's verifiable that, you know, banks can't create new money. Uh, I think Bitcoin is just such a logical um, solution to you know the Triffin dilemma and, and all these other issues that that underlie society and, and that are kind of hidden from most people's worldview. Um, but it would just create a fair, flat system that is 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 non-corruptible. And and I I don't know why that's I mean I know why it's so hard for people to see because it's taken me like two years of research to to really grok these concepts right. So that that's a good point. What were you doing before this? This rabbit hole that you find yourself in, like you know what? Uh, you mean before Bitcoin altogether? Yeah. Like oh man, I you know I'm <laughs> I'm a weird guy. Like I'm in a I'm in a rock band. I speak a few different languages. Um, I, I I'm not in any of the sectors that we would you would think. Like I'm I'm a three D graphics artist. Uh, I've worked on some some uh, small video games before. Um, I. I mean, I'm a musician, so I, I, I don't know. I, I what, just, what, uh, what, what was the first time that Bitcoin like crossed your path? Oh, I used to read Slashdot all the time. So Slashdot was a uh, news for nerds. It was the, the mecca of, of geeks on the internet um, in the 1990s and two, eh, somewhat in the 2000s. And it kind of fell out of, uh, out of uh, popularity. But um, it, it was the place to get any, you know, any geek news. And, and it came, you know, it, it was very very soon after bitcoin launched it was on there and i it's it's very strange because i remember i'm trying to like remember what it was like reading about it back then and i i just remember kind of being like okay that's that's a pretty interesting thing i don't really understand it and what, um, what year was that I didn't, is this like literally 08 or 09 uh no 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 uh 2010 or 2011 right okay sure. right um and then you know it would come back up again every once in a while and i'd be like oh that's that's interesting but like you know um i don't i don't know about it uh you know, I, again, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how it worked. I didn't understand, you know, why I needed a different kind of money. And then I started to get this idea that it was anonymous money. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, like, and then Silk Road came along and I, I, I did follow that loosely that people were buying drugs on the internet. That sounded interesting. And it, and it kept coming up enough that I was like, I was going to go buy some on Mt. Gox. I was going to go buy some Bitcoin. Right. And, uh, buy some and Bitcoin it's an, on Mt. Gox. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah for sure. 
I thought uh, you meant I was going to go buy some drugs on Silk Road. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I had to get the Bitcoin first, but it was funny because I went to go buy it and then they asked for your ID and your credit card. And I was like, wait a second, this isn't, this isn't anonymous at all. I don't trust, you know, but it's supposed to be anonymous. I'm not going to give you guys that information. Uh-huh. Um, and it kind of just fell off my radar for a while until 2017. And, I, and then it was like, why is the price going up of this thing still? I, I thought it was just for like criminals and, you know, and, and pornographers and, and people that buy drugs. And why, why does it keep going up? What, what is, what is it causes the price to go up? And, and that was the beginning of my rabbit hole. And it just, it took me so long to, to, to figure out, you know, to find good resources on it and eventually find Austrian economics. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time watching Andreas videos and he's a, he's a great talker. Um, I, you know, I don't think he has really gone down the economics rabbit hole as much as, uh, is, is it maybe he it might you know it might help him understand it the way that i think i do um and and that kind of gets me onto the monetary maximalism thing which i, I yeah. mentioned to you previously yeah. this is this um, is really interesting because i want I, I i want to learn all about this this is like the first one of the first times i've, I've heard this 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 turn of phrase monetary oh yeah 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 monetary maximalism because you hear bitcoin maximalism Right. And, you know, and you hear Bitcoiners are always just like, oh, well, everything is a shit coin except Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, that just sounds like that we're just, you know, well, we, you know, we're, we're shilling our bags just like everybody else. And, you know, right. the, the, the nano guys or the Bitcoin cash guys or, or whatever it is, um, you know, Decred, I think, was on your show. So mm-hmm. I was talking about and, you know, everybody's probably saying, oh, well, our thing is great, too. Right. But what's interesting is you'll see most of the other um, shit coiners will say, oh, well, I like Bitcoin. But I also think mine is good. Um, or, or you'll also see them say, oh, well, ours is like Bitcoin, but it's better because of the X, right? Um, so there's, there's one thing that, that underlies my, um, my understanding that I think Bitcoin is, is going to be really the only real money in the future. Um, you know, if, if, if everything goes according to plan. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that essentially money itself, right, is, a, is an aggregate market phenomenon. So if you go back and you have to like really look at the history of money. So there's a few good resources for this. There's Nick Sabo's um, shelling out. Um, Bitcoin standard goes over some of the history of money. Um, there's, there's also, you can read, um, is it Menger uh, on the origins of money? Um, so a few good pieces there. Um, there's definitely more than that too. That's escaping me right now, but y- you look back at what money what, what it is and how it came to be it was, you know, you started out with like these commodities like um, shells or feathers or salt, um, you know, a spice. Salt was money for a little while. Um, and, and why? Because that good was uh, widely desirable. It was widely held. And in general, it stored value over time um, until it didn't. And that's why most of these monies failed because you could create more of them and therefore it would destroy the wealth that was stored in them. But it's the, the idea is that over many thousands of years, the, the world settled on gold mm. and that's because gold became more liquid. It, it's this, um, what's it? Pro cyclical or this uh, positive feedback loop that the more people that use gold as money because it stored its value the best because of its stock to flow ratio, which is the idea that the, the, the existing stock of gold didn't ever dwindle because gold doesn't degrade in any way. It doesn't tarnish. Um, you can't, it doesn't really go away. And yet we keep adding to the, the supply of gold. But the, the amount we add to the supply of gold is, is uh, approximately the same every year, but the stock increases. So the existing new flow is very low in um in ratio to the, the stock that exists that's why gold holds its value so well um and and the world converged around gold as the you know one money and it was only due to gold's failings that it ever lost any monetary use whatsoever and and one of those failings is um that it wasn't that it was too dense right so like if i wanted to transact and i wanted to buy a, a cigarette off of you well you'd have to like shave a fleck of gold and then weigh it with a, a highly accurate, you know, um, milligram scale or whatever to, to know that it was the right amount of gold. And then also, so that was why silver was used as money. Also, there was this bimetallism. Um, but, but then eventually paper started being used because gold um, 
was is very you know was heavy and all that stuff that we already talked about. And then you know in the digital age today, um, gold requires physical locality to transact. You know you know forgetting all the assaying and all all that other stuff and storage. Just just transacting with somebody. You know I you know I buy things from all across the world now today. Now I would have to again I would have to cut it up and weigh it and then send it to somebody in the mail and that would cost more than the good that I'm buying in the first place just to <laughs> ship it there. So it doesn't work as money anymore. It has failed as money completely. It is only works as money between nation states on this massive scale. Um, and it works okay for that, but not so well. Um, I mean, Venezuela tried to get their gold recently from wherever the vault it was holding it and they had some trouble doing that. So, you know, not your, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, not your vaults, not your gold. Um, <laughs> it, so the idea that I think is that, you know, Bitcoin has the best assurances. Um, it has the most credible monetary policy. It is the most decentralized. It already is larger in, in economic value um, than all of the other monies, digital monies that exist today combined. Um, and, I believe that it, you know, all of its properties, at, uh, monetary properties, as, as uh, Andy Edstrom's book goes over, I think he has, what is it, 17 of them or something? 14. Um, yeah, I've just, oh, 14. Finished just yeah. finished that chapter. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think it is the best suited to be money. And the idea of having multiple monies is, is only, is, is really prevalent today because we have different monies from every different government, right? Mm -hmm. And this goes into... The last piece to understand this whole thing is you, is you got to read Ethics of Money Production um, by George Guido Holzman, um, where he he goes over um, legal tender laws. Uh, I wish I should have pulled my notes up to go over this, but essentially, the legal tender laws prevent good monies from being from 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 existing in the in the economy um, because they prop up bad monies, monies that don't store their value like fiat money, um, they, they prop it up. And without legal tender laws, that there would be a free market for money. And I believe that we'd have a convergence on one money. So the, 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 this is a fallover. This is an artifact of this fiat regime, if you will, um, that we have lots and lots of monies and that's normal. And I think that it's a, it's a very silly and it's a poor thing. It's, a, you know, it's, it's one step away from barter because if you want to transact with somebody in Europe, you've got to convert and transfer and then there's liquidity risk and, and you know, all this other stuff. So I, I just, uh, I don't think I'm explaining it very well, but it, <laughs> it is a concept to try to like dig into to understand that Bitcoin maximalism is yes, we do think that Bitcoin is some of the best properties of money that in, and that you're not going to build one that's going to be better because uh because you can't you, you can't make it harder asset than bitcoin right mm -hmm. um because it's already hard cap supply um you you could you could start like taking away from the supply um but i i don't think that that would work either because then that's again changing the prices of things and it wouldn't uh, it would distort price signals um i think i guess we're accurate we're taken away from the supply naturally just by people losing uh, the coins. So, it, you know, like this, this hard cap of 21 million. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like hard money, uh, because um, when people think of money, naturally they think of something they can touch and something they can put in their pocket and give to someone else. Um, the, the, the idea that Bitcoin is like this uh, digital money and it's not something you're ever going to touch, but people talk about it as a hard money. Um, could, could you just explain that concept? Um, yeah, so, well, the, the thing about it being digital is interesting. I was, uh, I'll, I'll wink at you. Uh, earlier today, I was talking to a young lady and she said, uh, she confused Bitcoin with V-Bucks. And, um, you know, and I explained to her, I think that's actually not that far off because uh, as a young person, the, the V-Bucks re represent real value to her. So V-Bucks are this uh, money in uh, a game called Fortnite. And to her, um, her being able to purchase things in this game were, were of real value, but um, trying to explain that to somebody who wasn't a date, uh, digital native that maybe doesn't play video games doesn't understand that concept and doesn't understand why those things are valuable. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a, you know, that's, that's just a, it takes time for society to realize that digital things can have value. Um, we're also not used to digitally scarce things, right? I mean, even V-Bucks, if I was the, the, 
the company that ran Fortnite, oh, I can create more V Bucks, and you know, it, it almost it, almost every money on the planet, or actually every money on the planet that we've ever tried, you can make more of, or you can find more of. Bitcoin is the only thing that you can't make more of. And why do I say that when um, you know you can make a new, let's say, I can fork Bitcoin right now and make another one that's it's Bitcoin better, right? It's that's the name of it, and it's uh, it's also hard cap, so you can't make any more of that. It's it's this social consensus around Bitcoin, the fact that there is no leaders, um, there is uh, decentralization, and th th that is what protects Bitcoin's hard cap supply. It is, is the, the, the interaction of these, these things together. It's not just the piece of code. The code can be changed. We understand that. Why won't the code be changed? Because the people that run the code are protecting their own money. They're looking after themselves. And you're never going to convince those people to debase their own currency. That is a simple concept to understand. Um, so that's why I believe that Bitcoin is the hardest money that will ever exist, because I don't think Bitcoin is going to get smaller. Uh, I think it's going to get bigger and it will become larger and more decentralized and more people will want to protect their own wealth. And it's just a, it's another positive feedback. There's a lot of positive feedback loops in it. And you have to extrapolate to in order to, to, to see the, the way that uh, I think a lot of people see it in this space. It takes a lot of extrapolation. And, and that's, that's sometimes it's hard for people, you know? Oh, yeah. Everybody would um, say exactly the same thing. <laughs> like you said, uh, two years ago, you started looking into it and you were looking around for resources. Um, where would you point people? What, what do you think have been like the, the breakthrough pieces of you know, educational it, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a book or YouTube videos, you've named a few already. Um, what, what do you think? Oh, yeah. There's so many good resources. Uh, the Nakamoto Institute. If you want to go, if you know, if you, if you just got into Bitcoin and you're one of these, um, hey, I just heard about Bitcoin and I'm here to fix it, people. Um, go to the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute or go look on Bitcoin Talk. There's uh, the first four years of Bitcoin. They went through all of the arguments that you probably just thought of and thought of how to fix Bitcoin with. Um, they've already hashed it out, uh, you know, a thousand times over. If you want to see kind of a, a fem ephemeral, philosophical, um, very holistic view of Bitcoin, uh, Dare Gigi's resources um, on, uh, what is it, uh, 21lessons.com. Yeah. Yep. And he has a book now. That's a phenomenal resource. Uh, if you haven't read the Bitcoin standard, forget everything else I just said, start there and then go off into some of these other things. Um, Parker Lewis on yeah. Unchained Capital Blog is just uh, amazing for, you know, even the finance guys. He's uh, lost also finance. Right. Oh, lost yeah. Oh, dude. Parker's just killing it. Um, my other, one of my other favorite pieces is uh, James O'Burn's Bitcoin for Safety. That's a ridiculously... Uh, uh, that's a look at like the global macro market and and where Bitcoin fits into that. Um, so I think that's a pretty good list. I'm just also like if you haven't delved into Austrian economics, I've mentioned a few ethics of money production. Uh, a nice short one is what have, what has government done to our money? Um, a, a good place to start is Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. That's a phenomenal book. Yeah, you have that one over on your desk too, don't you? Yep, because you told me to buy it. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's an amazing amount of resources today. Uh, the podcasts, there's um, Stefan Levera I mentioned, uh, Marty Bent's a nice, uh, you know, uh, it's it just a kind of uh, down to earth, but also gets cosmic view of everything. Um, I love the Bitcoin echo chamber. I think he's, uh, Colin's got just super high quality. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily release an episode every week, but the, that allows him to kind of condense the quality a little bit. Um, uh, what else? Noted podcast is always fun for more of a look at some of the technicals and um, also some memeing on shitcoiners. Um, there's a few other good ones. I don't know. Uh, there's, there's so much, you know. You hit me up on Twitter if you want more than that. That's a lot of resources to get to. Yeah. Take, take you a little while. <laughs> and I was going to say, I hope that, um, I mean, it's my belief that uh, over the next uh, six to nine months, we, we might have one of these incredible bull runs again. and We're just going to spike to the upside like we did back in 2017. And it's going to bring a lot of noobs into the space um, that are going to be in a much better position than they were two or three years ago because of the amount of resources that have now come online. 
Uh, and I just yeah. hope that a few or more of those people get convinced to stick around this time. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to, you know, make price predictions or anything like that, but, you know, it does seem to follow that with the supply contract, well, an effective market supply contraction because, you know, miners are, our miners are selling some Bitcoins to cover their costs and, you know, logically of the halving comes, there's going to be half as many that are that are available to be sold from, you know, constantly uh, miners have to pay their electricity costs. So it does make sense that the price will go up, but, you know, will it be, you know, a 30x or whatever? Will it follow the stock to flow ratio? We don't know. Um, but I do think over long periods of time, the price will continue to go up because it is scarce. And I think, you know, as Matt O'Dell says, uh, I think Bitcoin's the best money out there. And as more people realize that, the price should go up, right? That's, it's very simple because, yeah. you know, people will desire it. And it, it seems to be a Veblen good where as the price goes up, even more people want it. And, you know, as you said, and, and 2017 brought me in, right? The end of 2017, I was like, why is price go up? Why is number go up? I want to know. And I, I you know, two, two and a half years later, here we are. So. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that 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 may happen to other people as well. Um, and uh, it's again, there's that that incentive that this asymmetric return that's like it's not just, hey, price go up a little bit. It's like if this really catches on, then it, the price can still go up a lot. And that's I mean, I, I don't know. I hate I hate talking about the price because I think there's so much more interesting in Bitcoin. But that is a key driver of adoption. And uh, the system that Satoshi devised with the having schedule, it's it's almost maniacal. Right. Where, you know, four years, then it's like, it's, oh, we're in this bear market. Oh, man, Bitcoin's crashed. Bitcoin's going to zero. And then, boom, May 2020 comes along. And, well, what's going to happen now? And it's, yeah. you know, all bets are off. And, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, I've heard this talked about it many times. Why didn't he just, you know, each block have the, the be decreased by a little amount? And it's possible that, you know, that the idea is he created these hype cycles, that it, it would be these massive runs to catch lots of attention. I don't know. Uh, I don't know which one would have been better, but this is the system that we have. So uh, get some popcorn, my friends. It's uh, <laughs> It might be a really interesting next five years or so. Yeah, I certainly believe that. <laughs> um, well, Ben, it's been great to speak to you. Um, I, I want to ask you uh, a few last, um, last, I don't know, question. If there was, if there's one person that you could sit down with uh, to educate uh, about Bitcoin and um, get them clued in about it and talking about it um, to to their audience, which could be you know far wider than than anything we could ever hope to reach. Who would that person be? A, a, a Bitcoin person or a non-Bitcoin person? A non-Bitcoin person. Oof. Huh? I had not thought about that. Wow. Um... Yeah, I mean, you you almost want to say somebody on national TV, but that's that's kind of a dying medium anyway, right? Um, who has the global reach that, uh, you know, I think somebody like, you know, Joe Rogan or something like that. He's probably got one of the largest platforms on the planet right now. And, and, and Andreas has been on there a few times, so mm -hmm. maybe that's not a good choice. That's a really good question. Who would you talk to? Um, yeah. I don't know who's got the most reach. I I love that the sports guys are kind of getting into it a little bit. It was Russell O'Kung. Um, man, I'm just drawing a blank right now. Why are you going to reach out to them and try to have a conversation about Bitcoin? <laughs> that'd be yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned Joe Rogan because yeah, I've seen um, Andreas on there a few times, and um, you know, he had Snowden on recently. Uh, who's you know obviously spoken about Bitcoin before? Um, yeah, it's because you know I asked this my this question I have myself. I ask myself like if I could have one person, if I had a magic wand, if I could just you know invite someone like can you just please sit and listen? And right, I got one. I got one. Go ahead. You might laugh, but I bet you know who this is. Uh, Ninja. Do you know who Ninja is? No. Who's Ninja? Ninja is one of the largest streamers in the world he's a gamer okay if i could sit down and have a chat with him about bitcoin i think it would be a catalyst for uh, the gaming community to jump onto this technology because he's got 
a reach. And, and you know, I was talking about how I think it's it's a little bit more difficult for um, people that didn't grow up as digital natives to understand digital yeah. value. Um, these people understand digital value. They're tipping these little tokens already on, you know, Twitch has their own shitcoin essentially where they tip these little like diamonds thing. I can't remember what they're called. Um, you, you know, if, if, if I just told him, Hey, you can use Bitcoin for that and you don't need Twitch. Cause I think he got kicked off of Twitch and he had to like move to another platform. So he got the platform. So this idea of self-sovereignty would be, also resonate with his audience and his reach is, is, is absolutely massive. Um, and, if, if you're a gamer, you've heard this name. So, um, and, and it's the right, I think it's the right audience, the next audience that, that needs to come into the fold um, to understand. And what would be the average age group of that audience, right? As well, that's something to think about. That... Yeah, because, you know, if, you're, if you want to educate people, educating, you know, a bunch of, uh, uh, sorry to say it, but boomers that are, you know, they're, they're going into retirement and stuff. They're not going to be as economically relevant. You know, this is the next generation. Um, I, th I think, you know, you, you know, guys more in our, our age group is the kind of the more of the middle age group is important too, but the, the next generation, man, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the future. So <laughs> let's yeah. get them on board. You know, well, I'm sorry, Ninja. I've never heard of you. If you ever listen to the podcast, I'm just some 43 year old guy, you know, not, not, not gaming, but, um, Ben, thanks for, um, thanks for your time and what a great shout out. Um, a brilliant way to end the show. Uh, hope you enjoyed yourself and, and thank you very much for coming on. I did. Thank you. My, um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, M-R-C-O-L-B-P, uh, if you want to reach out anytime. And then uh, you can check out the website that we've been talking about the whole episode. It's WTFHappenedIn1971.com. Um, but that's it. I, I don't have anything else to show. So appreciate you having me on, brother. And uh, we should do this again sometime. Oh, absolutely. And it's Twitter where I found you. And thank you so much for being so approachable. And you, like, you got straight back to me on the DM um, really, really appreciate that. And I'm finding this so much in the crypto, um, kind of universe or the Bitcoin community. Um, thanks again. Have a, have a great, enjoy the rest of your weekend. All right. You too, man. Thank you. Well, guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed that, uh, that episode with Ben. Um, thanks again to Ben for, for giving up his time to, to talk to me and, uh, go through his, uh, his thoughts, and uh, I urge everybody to to go and look at uh, WTF happened in 1971. I think you know it really it, it really is a great uh, a great website to to get your head around exactly what's happened since um, since moving away from the gold standards. Um, I hope this has been an educational piece for you. Uh, feel feel free to reach out at Princey1976 on Twitter. At this rate, I'm getting more guests on. It'd be great if uh, if anybody could share the show around uh, your network. Doesn't it doesn't matter who your network is? It, you know, it's great for people to learn about Bitcoin uh, all over the world, all parts of uh, all different industries and sectors, and uh, all different ages. And we've got new guests coming on. I, I've been amazed at the uh, the response of people. We've got um, some big names coming on, so it's uh, it's been great so far. Please reach out. Um, get in touch. Uh, I'll, I'll build a website to support the podcast soon and update a, uh, an email address. Um, if anybody uh, wants to get in touch, please, please reach out via Twitter. And um, yeah, look forward to the next episode. Thanks for listening.